0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Empowered Living, with a message titled, But God. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I want you to imagine Jesus standing outside of the tomb of his friend, Lazarus, and as he does, he's weeping. But Jesus has arrived at the funeral four days late. For the last four days, Lazarus has been lying in the tomb. A tomb in those days would have been a cave with a rock sealing it. This kind of arrangement, at least in the early days of death, would have prevented the odor of the decaying body from being smelt. There's a distinctive smell to a decaying corpse. It's a smell that most people in the industrialized world have never smelled. There are a number of reasons for that. One is embalming changes everything, and also the practice of cremation changes everything. But in other eras, everyone was familiar with a strong odor of human decay. It was a most unpleasant smell. That smell actually permeates clothing, so that clothing needs to be discarded. And so the Jews made sure that the caves of the dead were well-sealed, lest mourners need to deal with the overpowering, pungent smell of death. And there stands Jesus in front of the sealed tomb of his friend. He's weeping. And because he's so well-known, everyone stops to observe him. Some say, look how he loved his friend, but others, not as generous towards him. They say, look, this chap is able to open the eyes of those born blind. Don't you think he would have had the power to have healed his friend? And yet, he did nothing. He even showed up four days late for the funeral. But everyone there knows that once Lazarus was dead, he should have stayed in that tomb. But Jesus demands they break the seal on the tomb, roll the stone away. No, no, responds the sister. By now there's already a very strong odor. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And then with a grave now standing open with men and women covering their faces with cloths. Jesus alone stands before the open tomb and calls into the darkness. Lazarus, he shouts, come forth. And the great preacher John Chrysostom, when preaching on John chapter 11, had Jesus had only said, come forth, rather than Lazarus, come forth. Then at the sound of his voice, all the dead would have risen to stand before him. Such, said Chrysostom, is the power of the one who raises the dead. Now, I relay that incident from the life of Jesus, for Jesus standing at the door of Lazarus' tomb is no different than Jesus standing at the door of a sinner's house saying, come and follow me. Some of us have difficulty conceiving of that. Your call to come to follow Jesus couldn't have been like Jesus calling Lazarus to step out from his tomb. But let me remind you of the passage we studied yesterday. Ephesians 2, 1 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I made the point yesterday that dead is dead. It's an irreversible condition in which there is no hope. But saying it that way discounts one important truth. Jesus raises the dead. And with that in mind, let's present the picture of conversion, the one that we find in Ephesians 2, 4-7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I've entitled today's message, But God, you know, from the first two words of today's text. It was the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones who once called this word, the word but, the one that begins this passage, he called it the, the mightiest adversative in history. After all, how can there be a but after the declaration that we're dead in sins? Dead people don't respond. Dead people don't reconsider their ways and make a decision that they should choose life rather than death. Death is the end of the road. It's the great irreversible condition from which there can be no change. And that would be the case. But God. Whenever we say, but God, we mean to say, that when God is involved, there are no irreversible conditions. It was God who devastated Egypt and parted the Red Sea and took Israel to the promised land. Israel would have remained a nation of slaves into the foreseeable future. Egypt had all the power and Israel had none but God. Imagine King Hezekiah trapped inside the walled city of Jerusalem. The Assyrian army has surrounded the city and has laid a withering siege against it. The Assyrian army has taken down cities of much greater power than Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah had nothing in his military arsenal to resist so great an empire as the one that had its sights set on him. He was doomed, but God. I simply love the way verse 4 begins, but God. I mean, what else needs to be said? Conversion is life from the dead. That is to say, conversion is an impossibility. You can convert to becoming a motorcycle enthusiast. You can convert to a new political party. You can convert to seeing the need for good nutrition and exercise. You can even convert to a new religion, but you can't convert from being dead in sin. You were alienated from God. You were an enemy of God. You did not seek God. Paul reminds us in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no one understands what God genuinely requires of us. No one seeks God. Indeed, we've all turned aside, we've all become worthless. And as Paul tells us, we are dead in sins, but God. See, I need to stop here because some of us, although that we are truly converted to Christ, have not yet grasped this truth. Remember that the way we view our conversion will ultimately determine how we live out our lives. Here's the problem. See, many of us, when we tell our story, we tell it differently. We don't say, but God. Instead, we say, but then I. Now, listen to the way many tell their testimonies. You know, we tell how how empty and lost we were, and then we say, I made a personal choice to turn my life over to Christ, so why do we talk that way? We respond, well, that's how it happened. Well, let's examine that. Let me go back to the story of Lazarus. Imagine you were sitting with Lazarus one day and he's telling the day, that remarkable day when he came out of the tomb. Imagine he said, well, I I got very sick. I had a high fever and then I died. And then, you know, four days later, I made a decision to come out of my tomb just like Jesus wanted me to do. Whatever we think, isn't there something missing in that story? But what if Lazarus protested and said, yeah, but that is what happened. I heard Jesus saying something and I followed him. You know, Jesus simply said, come out. And I made the decision I'd obey him. Yeah, that's my story. Uh, We still say, but that's not the story. And that's my point. Many of us have something missing in our view of salvation. And what's missing in our story is the phrase, but God. So let's study our text. I want you to notice four groups of words that Paul uses. The first is the phrase, rich in mercy. And then second, notice the phrase, the great love with which he loved us. Then third, notice the phrase, made us alive. And then finally, fourth, notice the phrase, seated us with him. What we are going to do is examine all four of those phrases one by one and discover afresh what happened to us if you know Christ What happened to you at your conversion? So here we are. Let's go. Here's the first phrase. But God being rich in mercy. That is, you might argue it's not a description of what happened to us at conversion. Isn't this a description of God himself? Well, yes, this is an attribute of God. God is merciful. But we who have come to believe in Christ were the beneficiaries of that attribute of God. So what's mercy? Mercy means to show kindness towards someone who is in misery, or someone who is in distress, or someone whose case is hopeless. And Paul says that was God's first action towards us who were dead in sins, who were by nature the objects of his wrath. God saw that we were incapable of changing our situation. He saw us in our rebellion, and he looked upon our irreversible condition, and then God was moved with pity. The good thing about God is not just that he's a merciful God, but Paul adds something to that. Did you see it? He says he's rich in mercy. See, if I were to tell you I knew a man who was rich in money, well, you'd know what I meant. If I said I knew someone who was rich in precious metals, again, you'd know what I was talking about. I would mean that in terms of material wealth, this person is a person that has an abundance far more easily than can be spent. It would be, you would assume, a very large amount. God has a superabundance of mercy. His mercy never ends. He lavishes it onto the spiritually dead. It's a commitment that he will do them good. And when we say, but God, well now, that's the God we're talking about.
0: In the spring of 2022, we have an exciting ministry vacation event designed just for you as we extend an invitation to journey with us for the Back to the Bible Canada's Israel experience. Travel to the Holy Land and experience many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Garden Tomb and and sail the Sea of Galilee as we worship together. Enjoy on-location Bible teaching with Dr. Newfeld and be encouraged in sharing the laughter with Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway. Experience all Israel has to offer with an intimate group of Christian friends. Don't miss this wonderful limited registration opportunity to visit the Holy Land and be inspired and refreshed in your walk with Jesus. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: I've said that Paul uses four phrases that tell us why saying, but God makes all the difference, can bring life where there was only death. The first phrase, as we have seen, is that God is rich in mercy. Now, here's the second phrase. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. The word because tells us why God gave life to those who were spiritually dead. The first is that he's rich in love. But the second is because of his great love, love he had for us, not after we turned to him, but rather before we turned to him. See, by putting it that way, Paul's taking away any justification we might have that we can take credit for having earned God's love. We were dead in trespasses when God looked upon us in love. But how are we understand the love of God? Well, let's read Jesus' description of it in his high priestly prayer. I'm reading from John 17, 23, where Jesus prays, I in them and you in me, that we may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That is, listen, Jesus says that the love he had for his own was the same love the Father had for the Son. We know from Scripture that from all eternity, the Son was the object of the Father's delight. I know that we often say that biblical love is the kind of love that seeks the good of the other regardless of the cost to the lover, and that's absolutely true. But I think while that's true, it's not the whole truth. Love can never be divorced from the idea of joy and delight, directed towards the object of love. See, you can't speak about love without speaking of tenderness and longing toward the one who is being loved. And so we know that the Father looked on ruined sinners, sinners dead in sin, sinners who were, as Paul says, the sons of disobedience to the laws of God, rebels in every way. And the Father, who as Paul has told us way back in Ephesians 1 verse 3, the one who chose us before the foundation of the world saw us now dead in sin, and his heart was moved with affection and compassion towards us. And says, Paul, it wasn't just love. It was great love. And so we have looked at two phrases, a God who is rich in mercy and a God who is great in love, a love directed towards trespassers who willingly and with abandon broke the laws of God. So let's look at the third phrase, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The phrase I'm after here is the phrase made us alive together with Christ. That is, at the very time the Father raised Christ from the dead, he also raised us up together with Christ. I hope you see that. We were made alive together with or alongside of Christ. I've said that conversion is a resurrection from the dead, but now we learn when it is that this resurrection actually happened. I know putting it the way Paul does seems confusing to some. I mean, how could I have been raised with Christ when, in fact, I hadn't even been born? But again, we need to remember the context of the entire passage. Having been chosen from before the foundation of the world, God now put into effect his eternal plan. That is, when Christ walked out of the tomb, in effect, with him walked out every single person whom God had elected as his own. And it's this thought that leads Paul to add the words, by grace you have been saved. Now, we're going to return to that in verse 8, but for now, he simply says it so that we might know that all of us who have come to believe in Christ were already claimed by Christ at the very moment he rolled away the stone and stepped out of his tomb. I've said there are four images or four phrases that Paul uses to highlight his words, but God. Had it not been for God's intervention, not one of us would have been saved. God is rich in mercy. God is great in love. God made us alive together alongside of the resurrection of Christ. And then the fourth phrase, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you notice that twice in this verse, whether we're raised with him or seated with him, we notice that this action was done alongside of Christ, when Christ was both raised and when he was seated in the heavenly places. So what does it mean for us to be seated with Christ in heavenly places? Now, in order to understand that phrase, we need to go back to chapter 1, 20 to 21. We were told that God the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. See, we also notice that at the right hand of the Father, that's the place of authority and power. Now, on the one hand, we might look at that statement as saying no more than When Christ was seated in the place of enthronement in heaven, he did so on behalf of us so that in ages to come, we too might be seated in the place where we would rule and reign together with Christ. That is to say, we might look at verse 6 to see that we have reason for hope in the future. And understanding the passage that way would be right, but we have to read this passage with the rest of Ephesians in mind. See, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul will call on believers to put on the whole armor of God so we can resist the onslaught of the devil. Now, with that in mind, Ephesians 2 verse 6 makes sense. If we've now been raised with him and seated with him in the place of power, we know that we now have been given an authority and power in heavenly places. That is, if believers are to know something of the greatness of their salvation, they ought to know that God has placed believers with Christ in the place of spiritual power. Or I might put it this way, right now, every believer should be aware of their spiritual power. True, it's not like the power we will have when we receive our final inheritance in heaven. True, it might only be a foretaste of the authority we will exercise then. But we do right now have a foretaste of the spiritual power that's already ours. So practically, what does it mean? It must mean something of what John had in mind when he wrote 1 John 4, verse 4. He said, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's to say there's a vast spiritual resource inside every believer, a resource that's put there by God, a resource that needs to be tapped. Are you feeling spiritually oppressed? The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Are you feeling tempted to the point that you wonder if you can withstand it? The one who is within you is greater than the one who is in the world. Don't you know that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Your sons and daughters of the light act like it and draw on the authority that God has given you. Now then, the words, but God, seem to loom ever larger. It's not just how great was my sin. It's really about how great is the God who intervened. What kind of a God is he? And what great things has he done? See, I take from this that there is something essential that ought to come out of our mouths when we're telling our conversion stories. See, if our story is not about our own unworthiness and the depth of our own sin, then followed by the story of a God who is rich in mercy, a God who is great in love, a God who made us alive together with Christ, a God who has given us the right to rule and reign with Christ. If God doesn't get all the glory in our conversion testimony, It's no testimony at all. Now to verse 7, where Paul tells us why God acted that way. Watch this. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I once read a story of a theology school president who, when he retired, was presented with a beautiful painted portrait of himself. He was so moved by the painting that here's what he said. He said, in the future, people looking at this picture will not say, who is that man? But they will say, who painted that portrait? Indeed, in the ages to come, that is exactly what will be said of all of us who have come to put our confidence in Christ. Who painted that? And we will say, you should have seen the person before the conversion, but God. And for all ages to come, we will marvel At the outcome of all those who have been redeemed by Christ, we will worship God. Now, go back again to verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show not just his riches, but his immeasurable riches. Well, not just his immeasurable riches, but the immeasurable riches of his grace. And in kindness. I mean, notice how Paul strings those words together, superlative after superlative after superlative. That's our conversion story. It makes so much of God's kindness towards the objects of his kindness in Christ Jesus. How about you? If you've not known Christ but have been moved by this marvelous portrait of conversion and are saying, in the coming ages, I want that too, would you pray with me? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that you died for me. Come, Lord Jesus, be
0: Lord of my life, amen. Thanks, John. You know, it it was a great message and it reminded me that, that we should be in awe of the idea of actually being in Christ. Shouldn't that impact us significantly?
1: Yeah, again, um, you know, yesterday we talked a little bit about sin. Well, maybe we talked a lot about it, Uh, but we did say how important it was that we gain a worldview of how sinful we actually are. I I think there are a great many people today who having underestimated their own sin have therefore come to the conclusion that the mercy of God was not that great. After all, I wasn't that bad. How much did I need to be rescued from? Once we get and grasp this idea, that we were dead in sin, unable to help ourselves, that we were only deserving of the wrath of God. Then <laughs> to read, you know Ephesians chapter two verse four, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, to read that kind of stuff, I mean it should overwhelm us. Uh, we, we should be filled with wonder, and, and we ought to have far more praise of God who rescued us from our irreversible condition. Um, So uh, these are important pictures always to keep in mind.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Empowered Living right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Today there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new laugh Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. To request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.